0: Now, as I mentioned uh, last week, we're going to start the letter of James. We're going to do that up until Easter, and then we'll, in Easter, we're going to go back to Mark. Because we haven't quite finished the Gospel of Mark, but the section that we're in in Mark um, is the Easter section, really. So I thought it would be profitable to just hang on at the moment with Mark start Mark again just before Easter because then we're in the passage that concerns Easter and in the meantime to start James, we'll do James up until Easter and then we'll continue it after Easter, so start reading through the letter of James in in your own time because it's an, an amazing letter, has a lot of good well, not just advice, um, really when the Bible, uh, the Bible doesn't give us advice, it gives us commands, that's the only way for it. When when God tells you something, he's not um, giving you advice, he's commanding you because he's God. So uh, I'll, I'll say advice, but you know what I mean, it is uh, it are our commands and teaching us how we should live. So I'm just going to read, I'm going to be looking actually this morning, this is just an introduction um, to the letter to help you to be able to read the letter yourself, to understand it. You need an introduction, you need to know the background. Before you read any part of the Bible, you need to really know what's going on, who wrote it, why they wrote it, who they wrote it to, so on and so forth. Without that, you don't fully appreciate what God is saying. So this morning we are just looking at an introduction, verse 1 and 2, but I'm going to read... A few more verses. Um, Let's stand to hear God's word as I read just the beginning part of James chapter 1. Testing your faith is a title in this translation I have here, the New American Standard. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect to receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God bless his word as we consider that. Just in a moment, please be seated. Before we consider this uh, introduction to James, let's come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, our Lord and our God, we now turn to your word. Your word is the truth. Jesus himself declared that. And we are to live by your word. All of it. Every last dot. Every last letter. Every last word, sentence, passage, book. And the book as a whole. All 66. Old and New Testament. We thank you for it in our lives that you have seen fit. To declare to us your word. What an amazing thing. Help us never to take it for granted. Help us always to value it beyond gold or silver, as we are indeed commanded to do so. Help us this morning particularly to understand as we embark upon looking at this amazing letter of James. Help us to understand, yes, but more than that. Help us to apply the truths to our lives that we might live according to your word, and be able to worship you more meaningfully as a result of your word in our lives. And I pray that you'll open my mouth to speak your word for your glory. Amen. Now, if anything is obvious from the Bible, it is that there is a true saving faith. There is a true relationship with God, there is a genuine salvation. There's a right way to come to God, a right way to be redeemed. To be saved. And if that's true, and it is, there's a corollary to that. Because a Satan, as an enemy of God, will obviously do everything that he can to counterfeit that correct way to come to God. And give a wrong way. Because if there's a right way to come to God, the devil is always going to come up with a myriad, actually, of wrong ways. A wrong way to true salvation. And one of the foremost, in fact, um, if not the foremost strategies of Satan, and this is obvious if you think about it, if you look around the world, is to counterfeit true religion. To counterfeit the true way to God. And make people think that they are safe. Make people think that they are okay, that they're on the way to heaven, when they're actually not. God teaches us that Satan primarily disguises himself as an angel of light. And obviously he spends a great deal of effort creating false religions. But his main object on earth is actually to create uh, a non-saving system of religion within the true church. He's very happy to create false religions and he gets a lot of people being led up the garden path with that. But his main effort is to try and corrupt the true church trying to generate a non-saving faith within true religion in other words Satan does his main work within genuine churches and when you think about that it's obvious because that's how he can do the most damage and that's always been the case we see that through history we certainly see it in the new testament we even see within the 12 disciples one of them Judas was false And the rest of them didn't have a clue. In fact, at the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper on the Thursday night, when Jesus told them, they were so shocked and so doubting that they said, well, it's not me, is it? Don't ever say that to yourself if you're genuinely saved. You don't need to do that. But they were so shocked. It it can't be one of us. Surely we're all okay that they started thinking, well, who is it? Is it me? But that's the way the devil works. There's always, even within churches, false Christians. Jesus warns us about that. I mean, in true religion, he fights by producing non-saving faith. So that people will believe themselves to be saved when they're not. He produces what you could, I suppose, call churchgoers. People who attend church services, but are not actually saved. Satan doesn't want people to hate God, that would be too obvious. What he does, he wants people to accept God, believe in God, but not actually be a true Christian. Now Jesus, as I say, taught about this in Matthew chapter 7, and and what Jesus said about this is particularly shocking when you listen to what he said. He said, some people, claiming obviously to be Christians, will say to me, Lord, Lord... Now that, that's the first shocking thing when you think about it. Some people will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, not just once, but they will repeat it. Lord, Lord, we believe that you are Lord. And they will also say, he continues, haven't we prophesied in your name? That is, preached. Haven't we cast out demons and done many wonderful works? And then comes the big shock. Jesus said, and, but I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you you workers of iniquity. That is shocking. These are people in churches who say, Lord, Lord, who preach, who say that they're casting out demons, say that they're doing many wonderful things. They, in other words, are saying the right thing, doing the right thing, but Jesus says, I don't know you. You're not one of my children. Don't be fooled Just because somebody preaches. Don't even be fooled if they do and claim to do amazing things. Jesus warns us very clearly about that in Matthew chapter 7. Now if there is a a true faith and if Satan does attack that true faith with a counterfeit faith. As we've just seen he does and there is. Then obviously God will respond to that and he does. And God will respond to the knowledge of that attack by calling his people to self-examination. That's why 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. That's why 1 John was written. That's why a portion of 2 Peter was written. And that's why this letter of James is written. It's written to call people who are just churchgoers, who are not genuinely saved, to realise it, By examining themselves according to what James teaches us in this letter. And the point then is that they will then realise that they're not saved. And then hopefully that they will be saved. The point of this is to call people to God who are fooling themselves into thinking that they're a Christian when actually they're not. That's why James writes this letter. These epistles have the primary object, not just James, but let's say 1 John and a portion of Second Peter. Of causing people to examine themselves, G- James really wants to show us the, the character of true living faith, as opposed to what he calls dead faith. The character of true saving faith, as opposed to what James calls non-saving faith, and he's mainly he's picking up really a biblical theme because the we we get this throughout the New Testament, particularly true saving faith is verified by fruit. That's how you know whether or not you're truly saved. Not by how much of the Bible you know, that just means possibly that you've got a good memory. Not by all the good things that you do. Anyone can do good things, and non-Christians do lots of good things. But the actual real verification of the fact that you're saved is spiritual fruit. And I'll explain what that is in just a moment. You see this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, when we see John the Baptist Preaching, We see that the problem, he brings it up right there and then. He says, um, they were baptised by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of snakes, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So these are not just people who are going to the church at that time. It wasn't a church, but you, you see the point. These are people who are very religious. These are not just people who are very religious. These are people who are the religious leaders. The ones leading the people. And they come to John, and he says to them, the same as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. I don't know you, basically. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? And then he says something very important. He calls them to true salvation. He's calling them away from the false religion, because they are very, very religious. They're going to the synagogues, they're doing all the things he's supposed to do. They say that they are God's people. But John says, bring forth, therefore, fruit that fits with repentance. Bring fruit that fits with repentance. In other words, John is saying, true repentance is verified by spiritual fruit. Now Jesus says exactly the same thing in John 15 verse 8. In this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, then you are my disciples. So, a true disciple is known by their fruit. That's the first thing I want you to think about this morning. A true disciple is known by their fruit. Not biblical knowledge... Not doing things, I mean the, the devil knows the Bible inside out. In fact, when the devil confronted Jesus and tempted him in the beginning, in the wilderness, what did the devil do? He quoted the Bible again and again and again. It's not that that shows that you're genuinely saved, it's spiritual fruit. Obviously, if you are genuinely saved, you should also know the Bible, obviously. But knowing the Bible and doing things in and of themselves is not necessarily an indicator of spiritual truth. And it says, Jesus says in John 15, the branches that do not bear fruit, in other words, the branches that show that you're not generally saved, are thrown out. The people who are attending church services and doing good things, but are not generally saved. So, if salvation produces anything, it produces this spiritual fruit. And also, very importantly, as Jesus himself makes clear, an obedience, an obedience to god 's word, John chapter five, verse two and following says, By this we know that we love God when we keep His commandments. So as well as the spiritual fruit, another indicator that you are genuine that you're a genuine Christian, Jesus says in John chapter five verse two, you want to know how you know you 're a child of God if you keep his commandments. Now that doesn 't mean you 're perfect, you will still sin. But do you at least accept what God says and live by his word? That shows that you're genuinely saved. But the sum is, faith saving faith, true saving faith, is summed and verified by fruit. Living faith, in terms of what James uses here, can be seen with the fruit. Not just doing things. What, then, is the fruit? Well, we're told... In the Bible again, in the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And those are not individuals, it's not fruit, plural, it's fruit, singular, which means that you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you see that in an individual, that's how you know that that person is genuine. So James is writing then to verify that, and he gives us various tests. If you look at the last uh, two verses in James, chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, you get a feel for this book, this letter I should say. Brethren, if any of you strays away from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns that sinner from the error of the way will save a soul from death. Now the Greek word there, um, delusion, meaning a delusion of salvation. And what James is saying there is that if you see somebody who doesn't show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if you see somebody who doesn't accept the Bible and doesn't live by the Bible, you need to tell them. Because you can save them as a result of that. They're headed in a direction that is a very, very dangerous direction to be headed in. Because if they're not actually saved, they could be on the way to hell. If they're not actually saved, actually they are on the way to hell, if you know what I mean. So James, in writing this letter, that's why he's writing. He's writing to say, look, be aware. Have enough love for somebody to confront them if necessary. It's not love to just ignore problems. It's not love to just ignore people who are in sin. It's not love. Love is being concerned enough for that person to actually go to them and say whatever needs to be said in that particular situation. You can turn a sinner from the delusion of wrong way of salvation and save them from eternal hell. Jesus called um, the wrong way of salvation the broad way that leads to destruction. If you remember, Jesus says you need to be on the right path. There are two paths. There's a narrow, hard path. It's not easy being a Christian. It's difficult. You will face confliction. You will face temptation. You will face persecution. It's a hard, narrow path. There's a broader path, and it's a religious path. But it's a path that leads to hell. Get off the broad path, Jesus says. And James basically is saying the same thing. He's writing to give you a manual of tests that can identify people in any particular congregation who are in error, who've heard from the truth, to turn them back, to give them the opportunity to be saved, to get that forgiveness. That's what this letter is about. Now, without understanding of the letter, the overall intent, let's meet the author, James. We see the author... James in verse 1. It says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. In your translation it almost certainly won't say slave. Um, It should do because the Greek word is slave. If you get what they call the the Legacy Standard Bible, which has just been produced at the moment and the New Testament is available, the Old Testament will be available at some point. The Legacy Standard Bible you'll see slave there. The Legacy Standard Bible is very, very accurate and very close to the original languages. So James is a slave of God. Now, another thing, his name actually isn't James. His name is Jacob. James is uh, an anglicised an anglicised uh, version of uh, Jacob, a very common name uh, in the, the New Testament. Eventually, it became James in English because it lost its original identity in the Latin but he's really called Jacob. But we'll call him James, just otherwise it gets a bit confusing. So, who is this James? All it says is James. It doesn't say anything about him, it's just a general statement I am a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which James are we talking about? Well, the New Testament names four different James. So, we have four choices. It's one of those four, obviously. The first James that we read about in the New Testament is James, son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve disciples. So one of the twelve, in fact there's two James in the twelve, we'll come to the other one in a moment. One of the twelve was called James. And the only thing we know about that James is that he might have been a brother of Matthew. The reason that we think that is because in Mark chapter 2 verse 14, Matthew, known as Levi, was a son of Alphaeus. Now, James, we're told, was also a son of Alphaeus. It's probably the same Alphaeus. If it is the same Alphaeus, then they were brothers. But apart from that, we don't know anything else about the James, who is one of the twelve. And there's no reason to believe that he wrote this epistle. There's no evidence at all. It's given no credit to him as the author. So it's probably not him. The second one is James, the father of Judas. Luke chapter 6, verse 16 mentions that there is another James... And he was the father of Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas. If you know your Bibles, you'll know that there were two disciples called Judas. One of them, obviously, was Judas Iscariot. The other one was another Judas. Now, this James is very obscure. There's no reason to to think that he could have written this epistle. We don't know anything about him. He might not have even been a Christian, for all we know. All it says is he was the father of one of them. So, it's almost certainly not him. The third James that we read about in the New Testament is the one that you're probably most familiar with. This is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Remember James and John, sons of thunder, volatile men. This is another James who was one of the twelve disciples. One of the inner three, Peter, James and John. He's called by Jesus from fishing and Matthew chapter 4 we're told that he would be called a fisher of men. Now he would have been a good candidate for writing this. However, he was killed before it was written. Because this James was the first of the twelve to be killed. He wasn't the first martyr, because Stephen was the first martyr, but he was the first of the apostles to be martyred. If you want to read about his martyrdom, we see it in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Now, since he died, obviously he didn't write the letter. That leaves us with one final James, who is the most likely candidate to have written this, and that's James... The half, I'll say half-brother of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was born, his mother was a virgin. But after that, she went on with her husband Joseph to bear children, male and female. The Bible gives us their names, at least the names of the boys. And the Bible also tells us that uh, she also had uh, girls. And one of those, and most likely the eldest, because he's always named first, was called James we meet him in Galatians chapter 1 verse 19 but other of the apostles I saw none except James the Lord's brother so Paul is saying I didn't see any of the twelve but I did see James the half brother of Jesus we learn in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9 it says when James, Peter and John now that's the same James not, the, not one of the twelve were pillars of the church seemed to be pillars of the church so Paul it says that this James, who was a half-brother of Jesus, one of Mary's other sons, was a pillar in the church, along with Peter and John. He lists him with Peter and John, so he's pretty elevated. Obviously, a man of great stature, a man of great reputation. If we go back a bit, actually, in time, to Mark chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, we do see, it says, When Jesus went to Nazareth and did all that he did, the people commentated by saying, Isn't this the carpenter, the the son of Mary, uh, the brother of James, and now he, he lists the brothers, the Joseph, Judas and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Notice there that James is listed first, that's why I think he's probably the eldest brother. We see the same thing in John chapter 7. His brothers therefore said to him, that's his half-brothers, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you do. For there is no man doing anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself. And then it says in verse 5, For neither his brothers believed in him. So, to begin with, this James, his half-brother, and the other brothers, and the sisters, and even Mary, possibly, we don't know, didn't actually believe in Jesus. Which, you can understand, they'd grown up with him, it's a bit hard to think that that brother of yours is actually the Son of God, and they had a hard time with that. They'd lived with him as a child. They didn't believe. But we do see that later they were saved. By the time you get to Acts chapter 1 verse 14, we see that James and the brothers are with Mary in the upper room, gathered with all of those who believed in Christ after the resurrection. So they did become Christians. Mary, along with the brothers Judas, Joseph, Simon and James were there. What happened to change them? Why did they become Christians? Well, we see the answer to that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Um, It says that Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. And then he was seen. And then it lists the people who'd seen him. So this is Jesus after the resurrection, and he appears to certain people. Peter's one of them, then the twelve, then five hundred others. And then it says in verse 7, and after that he was seen by James... And then all the apostles. So, Jesus revealed himself, particularly to his half-brother James, specifically in this post-resurrection revelation. And that's why James, obviously, he's seen Jesus rise from the dead, he would have got saved probably at that point. And that's why we see in Acts chapter 1, he's there in the upper room. And we know that his brothers also became Christians too. It's in the epistle Jude that we know that Jesus' other brothers were saved. It says in verse 1, Jude, the sermon of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So Jude also got saved and the other brothers were saved too. Jude wrote the letter Jude. He actually was called Judas, but you can imagine... He don't really want that name, so he started calling himself Jude. And that's when he wrote the letter Jude. So you've got two New Testament epistles written by half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude. We learn a bit more about James in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5, where we find Paul talking about his rights as an apostle. And Paul says, haven't we got a right to have a, a wife, like the other apostles, and the brothers of our Lord and also Peter? so Paul says there that they should have a wife they should have a right to wife just in the same way that Peter has a wife and James and Judas and the other brothers half brothers I should say of Jesus have a wife so James and the brothers were married James eventually came to faith Jude came to faith the brothers came to faith and they were married and they were mainstream in the church what happened then to this James what did he do next well in Acts chapter 12 verse 17 we see Peter's in prison they're having a prayer meeting about his release. And he's released. And I also think this is a bit funny because they're all in, indoors scared because obviously there's a lot of persecution going on. And they're praying that Peter will get released. And Peter turns up at the door. And he knocks on the door. And they say, who is it? And he says, Peter. And the girl who answers the door goes back into the, the meeting. And she says, Peter's at the door. And they also... Uh, well, no, he, he can't be at the door because he's in prison. We're praying for him to be released. Now, I think that's funny because <laughs> there he is. He's being released. And they're all saying, no, no, it can't be him. He's in prison. We're praying for him to be released. He's released. He's knocking at the door. Anyway, eventually he gets in. And what does he say? This is the important bit. He says, go and show these things to who? To James and to the others. The first one he lists is go and tell James about this. So James is very prominent by now. The last time we saw him, he was in the upper room. Now in Acts chapter twelve, he's the main one. If there's any important news, tell James first. By the time that this has happened, James is obviously the pastor of the church. Now there's only one church in the world at this time. There's only one church. It's in Jerusalem. James is the pastor. And you can imagine why, what what renown he would have had as the half-brother of Jesus. He literally grew up with Jesus. He was with Jesus for the 30 years before anyone ever saw Jesus. You can imagine what renown he would have had. He's had a personal appearance after the resurrection, Jesus came to him. And also, he's in this very prominent position. Now by the time you get to Acts 15, so we're moving on again now in time, we see this James again. Acts 15 there's a very important council of the church in Jerusalem. They've got some serious decisions to make. Paul's been out evangelising the Gentiles. He comes back with Barnabas and he gives a report. They tell about the problem they're having in the Jewish community because some Jews are saying you shouldn't accept the Gentiles. How can a Gentile be, be a Christian? How can a Gentile be saved? So this council have to make some decisions. Do we accept the Gentiles? But the important bit for our point here is in verse 13, it says, really, who's presiding of the council? And after they held their peace, when they stopped giving their report, who answers them? Guess what? James answers verse 13. So James answers because obviously he's in charge. So not only is he the pastor of the church, he's in charge of the big council. And Paul and Barnabas, they answer to James he's the key person and and he replies men and brethren listen to me he's going to give the answer and then they write a letter James composes the letter with them to tell the Gentile churches yes you are accepted you can be a Christian and be a Gentile James in other words was the head of the church now that's really interesting because the, the Catholics will tell you that Peter was the head of the church and their whole papal system is built on that Peter answered to James actually we'll see that in a moment as well Peter was not the head of the church. James was the head of the church. All of a sudden, James is the one that the report goes to. That's what the Bible teaches us. He's the one leading the Jerusalem Council. Now the last time we see him is Acts twenty one. So we're moving on again now to chapter twenty-one. And in verse eighteen, we see him once more time one more time. Paul's coming back from a missionary journey, taking an offering to the poor churches. And they came to Jerusalem and it says in verse 18, the brethren received us and the following day Paul went with us to, guess who? James again. James is the one they all go to. So James is in this presiding role. Again we see the importance of James. Now the question comes now. Obviously this James was the head of the church, the pastor of the church, the leader of the council. Very important. What makes us think that it's this particular James that wrote this epistle? Well, I've already said that um, James, the son of Alphaeus, was very obscure. There's no evidence at all that he wrote it. James, the father of Judas, might not have even been a Christian. James, the son of Zebedee, is dead. So it has to be this James who wrote this letter, who became the head of the church. When, though, did he write it? That's the next question we need to ask before we really get into looking at it. When did he write it? First of all, we can tell by looking at the text, it's pretty clear that it was before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And also, it's clear that it's before the Council of Jerusalem in AD 50. It's also clear that because he writes in verse 1 to the 12 tribes of Jews scattered, it's after that. It's after the scattering of the church. The church was scattered because of persecution. Now, that scattering took place... In Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. If you know Acts, you'll know that Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen was stoned. And then in Acts chapter 8, Saul, who became Paul, is breathing out threats and he's slaughtering Christians. And that's the persecution begins. That's why the church then was scattered. And that happened 35 to 37 AD. So between 37 AD probably and AD 50 when the council took place that's when this letter was written AD 35 to 50 that fits actually with the leadership of James if you go far enough after AD 35 it's time enough for the church to settle struggles and problems that James speaks of if you get close enough to chapter uh, to AD 50 James is in this position of leadership he's got this position of authority you see him peter reports to him in chapter 12 he presides over the council in acts chapter 15 So it's around about A.D. 40 that he wrote this epistle. That fits perfectly with this particular James and the church. Also, by the way, that makes this the very first New Testament book letter to be written. Which would make sense. If he's the pastor of the first church, he writes the first book of the New Testament. Don't ever think, just because it's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in that order, that's not the order in which they were written. The order is James, then others as well. So James is the first letter, the first book of the Bible to be written as far as chronology is concerned. That's, that's quite interesting. So this is James, half-brother of Jesus. He had the respect of the church. He obviously rose to, wrote to leadership in the church. He had the privilege of seeing the risen Christ. And it's pretty clear that he wrote this letter. Furthermore, the fact that he identifies himself as just James... Now, he's obviously assuming everyone knows him. He just says, James. Otherwise, people would have said, well, which James? He knows that they know who he is. He doesn't need any other introduction. And that would only be true of this particular James, who was the head of the church and the head of the council. He was so well known, he doesn't need to explain who he is and also if you study the Greek text you'll see that this is one of the some of the finest Greek actually in the New Testament um, equal in literary character probably only by the letter, uh, the epistle of Hebrews now that again leads us to, to believe that this is this James this James was quite Greek in his outlook uh, because he's from the north um, Jews from the, the south in Jerusalem were pretty much more influenced um, with the, the Aramaic language the Jews spoke Aramaic So when you read about them speaking, they were usually speaking Aramaic. And everyone in the south, that that was their, their thing. But in the north, they were a little bit more influenced by Greek. And that would fit, again, with James, because he was from the north. All this leads us to assume that this is the James who wrote this letter. To add to all that, we compare the epistle of James with Acts 15. There's a lot of similarities. Now, what kind of man was he? We need to know that as well if we are to understand this letter. If you read through a few times, you get the idea pretty quickly. Um, he was characterised by a lot of energy. He's very short in his, his approach, very forceful, very direct, very authoritative. At the same time, still pastoral, warmly pastoral. He's, he's very different to Paul. Paul brings up an issue, and then he explores everything in that issue. James just blasts the target and moves on. He's really blunt. He's very, very direct. He just commands, he says, this is what God says, deal with it. And then he moves on to something else. Black and white, that's that's James. Furthermore, just looking beyond his character, what about his spirituality? As you look at this epistle, you see, he was a very deeply spiritual man. Uh, In fact, tradition calls him James the the righteous or James the just. But above all, he was a humble man. And that fits with what I was saying earlier about... um, Um, The fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Humility is is a key fruit of the Spirit. He just says, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember who this man is. And that's how he introduces himself. Notice what he doesn't say. The leader of the church. The pastor of the first church. The brother of the Messiah. He, He doesn't list all the things that he's done expecting thanks and approval. He just says, James. A slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ Not he doesn't say James the head of the church he doesn't say Reverend Holy Dr James or James the living breathing brother of the Lord Jesus or, or James who saw Jesus after the resurrection and also happened to be his half brother and lived with him for 30 years which he could have but he doesn't. he doesn't he just says James a slave of God that shows us that he's a humble man doesn't exalt himself with any reference to his human relationship doesn't list anything And humility, actually, it's quite a theme in this letter of James. We see it in chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, don't have the faith, uh, have have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons. You know, what he's saying there is, you know, treat everyone the same. Nobody's above each other, we're all the same. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Don't be teachers, many of you, because you will receive greater judgment, for in many things we all stumble. He was a teacher then in chapter 4 verse 6 he says God gives more grace wherefore he says God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble Uh, James understands full well that he's just a sinner like everybody else he's under no illusions he doesn't want to elevate himself unlike many so called spiritual leaders today who give themselves fancy titles and the holy reverend doctor or whatever and they give themselves all these fancy robes you know people love to be elevated they love to be liked and to be acknowledged and to, to they love you to know what they've done and, and have all these fancy clothes. James isn't like that at all. He's humble, he makes no claim to title, he makes no claim to rank. He wasn't even an apostle. Um, an apostle was one of the twelve, one of those sent out. He was never sent out, he stayed in Jerusalem. And by the way, when he was there, present in Acts chapter 1, when they were seeking to replace Judas, they didn't choose James, they chose Matthias. He doesn't rank with the apostles, but he's just a humble shepherd of the church of Jerusalem. He knew what it was to be humble. Now, the final thing is, who did he write to? We see it in verse 1, to the twelve tribes. That was a common title for Jews, obviously. Used in the New Testament on many occasions. And it says, who are scattered abroad. Now that's the, what they call the, the dispersion, um, because of the persecution. The Christians in Jerusalem, a lot of them had to flee, because they were being attacked and killed. So they spread out. This was God's way, incidentally, of spreading the gospel. This caused the gospel to be spread to eventually reach us. So that's who he's writing to. Who specifically? Well, Jews, yes. Jews who were scattered, yes. But also, we get another clue in verse 2, brethren he calls them. Brothers in verse 9. So these are Christian Jews. So he's writing to Christian Jews, the same audience to whom one Peter is addressed, who've been scattered because of the persecution that began in Acts. Perhaps they were converted on the day of Pentecost so that's who he's writing to these scattered Christians they're the first ones to get this letter they've left Jerusalem for their faith because of persecution these Jewish Christians they knew what it was like to be persecuted and now it's happening again we know that because the next verse he says, verse 2 count it all joy when you fall into various trials, these people know what it's like to be persecuted they know what it's like to be in trial, they've been scattered they're facing the attack of Satan Probably started around, as I say, AD 35 to AD 37. Not that long after the death of Jesus Christ. But now they're settled in small churches. that have moved out. And James is writing to them. And he's primarily concerned that they have a true saving faith. He really wants to make sure that they know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knows full well. Because Jesus warns in Matthew chapter um, 7 and other passages too actually... That even within the church, there will be people who aren't saved. So James is concerned about this. And he writes, be aware of this. And he gives us tests. He starts by saying greeting. In other words, be glad. Because this letter should verify the genuineness of your salvation. He knows that salvation is by election. Because he says, so in chapter 2 verse 5, as not God chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to them that love him. So he knows that it's a a divine act of sovereign grace but he also knows that that true faith is verified by a transformed life, by fruit. Therefore we see him offering all these tests of the validity of faith and that's what we're going to be looking at from next week on. These tests that show us that we are in fact saved or sadly for some people will cause them to realise that they're not saved, but they're not too sad because then hopefully they will then be saved so that's what the letter's about and next week we're going to start with the text itself this has just been an introduction you need to know all of this to really appreciate what's going on in this letter, let's come to God in prayer Father we thank you for this amazing letter of James, the first book, letter of the New Testament to be written We thank you for your slave, as he correctly calls himself, James, who was willing himself to face the persecution that was very evident at this time in history, particularly in Jerusalem and around for all Christians. And yet he was willing to stand up and be counted. He was willing to stay true to your word, to stay true to you. Help us as we, in the weeks to come, Consider these various tests which James gives us to learn, to grow, to mature as a result of this letter, your word, in our lives. And we thank you for it. Amen.